Welcome to the Real Estate Investing Roundtable Podcast, where we interview experts who tackle the tough topics and share strategies and techniques that will help you start, build, and grow your real estate investing business. And now your host, Rob the House Guy. REI Roundtable. We do live interviews with real investors that are active in the market today. This is the exact type of show I wish I had when I got started over 22 years ago. Today, I'm really excited because we have Lee Carney here with us, and he's been in the business for about 15 years. Yep. Oh, amazing. Well, I'm your host, Rob the House Guy, and we are going to dive deep and learn what makes this guy tick. Welcome, Lee. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Man, where do I start? So my first flip was actually in 2003 by accident. I bought a condo, got broken into, this is back in Ireland, put it right back in the market and made more money flipping that property by accident than I did in my job. So for me, the light bulb went off and I said, this is crazy. It's like I did an accidental transaction, made more money than a job. So I decided right there and then I wanted to get into real estate. Now, one of the first things I did, I moved to California. I chased a girl out to California, as one does from Ireland. I know it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Found a guy at church who was flipping houses. And I said, how can I help you? So I went to Home Depot, followed him around. He showed me where he bought, how, what kind of money he put into the property. His big thing was you got to do landscaping because this was Southern California. You got to make sure you got green grass. So I did exactly what he said. Made about 35 grand on my first flip, which is actually sitting right outside my office still to remind me of where I started. Did another one in California, moved to Florida, asked lots of questions, found one of my friend's fathers was buying at the foreclosure auctions. That forever changed my life. So I went, started going to foreclosure auctions, learned how to be the biggest buyer in Hillsborough County. I went from being a nobody to being the biggest buyer at the Hillsborough County foreclosure auctions between lines of credit. And I mean, I bootstrapped this entire thing with credit cards. It was crazy. Credit cards and lines of credit from Bank of America, I went from having about $10,000 to having millions of dollars of real estate. Then 2007 came and wiped me out. I remember I got off my honeymoon at the time and I told my wife, I said, we're broke, we're done. We have no money, we can't pay any more bills after this after a six week honeymoon. So that was interesting. A six week honeymoon? Oh yeah. So this would have been something to share with me while I was no, saying I do. No, 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 we do it right after the honeymoon. So anyway, we got back, stopped paying all the bills and I had to figure out what do I do? So I went to one of my mentors and he said, sell your way out of it. And I said, okay, well, it wasn't the answer I was expecting. So I looked around the marketplace and I said, you know what, there's tons of people making money. I'm getting my butt kicked. <laughs> and I said, how, how do I fix this? So I realized two things. One, there's always money in real estate. And two, you just gotta be on the right side of the trade. So in 2008, I said, the only people making money right now are wholesalers. So I completely bagged rehabbing houses. And I said, I'm only gonna buy and sell. I'm gonna do transactions and make money. After 2008, a million bucks in the bank in year one of wholesaling. So that's when I said, you know what, this is crazy. There's still investors like just getting crushed. I'm making a bunch of money. So I'm gonna stick with the right strategy at the right time. So we primarily wholesale 2008. This might sound familiar, 2009, 2010, 2011. Then we started buying again and keeping rentals. So once the market seemed to turn, 2011 built up several hundred rentals, which I actually just dispose of. And that's a big thing for me. Mm -hmm. If we're with rentals, you got to buy them right, you got to sell them right. So it was the right time to buy uh, seven, eight years ago. It's the right time to sell. Even today, you can still sneak out the back door before everything starts going back the other way. And we got into fix and flips. So we big into fix and flips in a big way. I was doing big value adds, crazy rehabs, but I learned several years ago, I want the other people to have the hard rehabs. So now we've re-engineered our, our business again. I buy nationwide 
but I'm chasing asset type. So I'm buying newer houses, easy rehab, paint carpet, in and out, and that's it's a very plug and play business now. So you just threw a lot of information at us, and I know that the folks at home are gonna probably have the same question I'm having. So you just came back from your six-week honeymoon, yes. which is probably fantastic. Yes, to amazing. To basically tell your wife, welcome to the life of poverty, and I'm sure that she wasn't thrown off a little bit after just being on a six-week honeymoon. But the first thing you did, you said you stopped paying all your bills. Yes. So let's go ahead and take you from, you stopped paying your bills, to now you're buying millions in real estate, Who's giving you money? Are you using all private money or the banks back in love with you? Well, that, that's a great question. So I had several fires to deal with. Number one was unsecured debt. I basically told all the credit card companies I can settle for, I think it was 25, 30 cents in the dollar. So that was one bucket of debt I had to deal with. The other bucket of debt was non-cash flowing rentals. And this was a big mistake I made. I didn't have a mentor saying, hey, you should be only buying houses that cash flow. So what would happen is we would rehab these houses, couldn't sell them. I said, I'll just keep it as a rental. The numbers didn't work. My PITI payment was more than my rent, which means I was negative cash flowing. So imagine a market correction coupled with negative cash flow completely wiped me out. So then that bucket of properties, we just dealt with short sales. So I just did them all myself. I just negotiated all the short sales, all the credit card debt, got everything wiped out. So to your point, I only started with a few thousand dollars. And so that revenue cycles really quickly on wholesaling. So if you're making five, 10, 15 grand a house, it doesn't take very long to get a bankroll back, especially if you're wholesale. We were doing double closes. So we'd buy and sell and I was starting to put away twenty, thirty thousand dollars a week because we're just cash flowing. It's just all profit. So really you're doing a lot of self-funding at that, just when you start ramping back up more. It was escrow deposits, that's all it was. Right, more escrow deposits, so you're wholesaling, and then now are you back in good graces with the banks and they're going back to lines of credit, or you just said, I have enough of my own capital and private We investors. use mainly private capital and institutional capital, but not bank capital. So for instance, you know, Bank of America, who I did a bunch of short sales with, never wants to talk to me again. <laughs> exactly. Can you tell everyone, what does institutional capital mean? Sure, so for me, it'd be like the likes of Genesis Capital, Lima Capital, You've got, um, that would be the main two that we would use, Lima and Genesis. Okay, so how are you getting in contact with these folks? Uh, Five Arch, for instance, would be another one. Five Arch, so how are you presenting yourself to these folks saying, hey, I need to use your money for my operations? They're actually hunting us down. And so what I did was, I several years ago, I plugged myself into the IMN, which is a series of conventions they do nationally and specifically the one on single family. And by going to these institutional level conferences, I'm able to run into institutional lenders. So I've developed a lot of those bigger relationships by going to that specific conference, which is why I go twice a year religiously, because I like to meet the same people. And you're talking about people that manage billions of dollars. So you're talking to the one guy who manages billions of dollars of capital. So it's just a different space and they wanna put out money, they're borrowing so cheap, their blended cost of capital is so low, they're now able to lend to people like us Seven, eight percent. Oh, exactly. Because with the rates where they're going right now, exactly, <laughs> we get nothing for it. Exactly. Uh, so, what is an IMN? Help everyone at home. I, I believe it's informational information management network. But they put on a series of conferences in different industries. The one I go to specifically is IMN SFR. So that's the one I go to. Single family residence. Correct. Awesome. Yeah. Wow, that's very that's very informational for everybody. Yeah. Well, that, that's granular. That's specifically where I started running into these big lenders. And they're all throwing five, 10, $20 million lines of credit at you. It's pretty nuts. Okay, so now you have this line of credit. How is the underwriting for that working with you? Are they pretty much, you're the underwriter and you're saying no. wire 80 grand? No, it's very, very straightforward. 
First of all, they underwrite you as a borrower, then they underwrite each asset and it's just got to appraise. So if you say it's worth 300 after it's fixed up and it's worth 200 grand today, you just got to be correct with that because they'll do their own valuation. As long as you did what you said you're going to do and the property appraises out, you'll get the money. How quickly are they closing? That's a good question. They, they probably would not like the answer I'm about to give you. They can close as little as two or three days. They like a couple weeks. Nice. Okay. So you're still in the game of being able to get the deep discount because you can close fast. Correct. All right. Let's talk about your housing stock. How are you finding it? You're in, you said nationwide. Correct. I mean, how many markets? We're actively at any one time, 20, 25 markets. Wow. 20, 25 markets. Yes. And are you buying private? Or off from realtors? We, we actually, for the stuff that we buy outside of Florida, we we use an we use all the auction platforms. So, and I buy off some tapes too, which I have developed relationships with over the years. So, if you take auction.com and Zone, for instance, we just look for anomalies. So, I look for mispriced assets. So, that's my particular strategy. I look for stuff that was listed wrong, described wrong. I mean, a lot of times you'll have see stuff that says a thousand square foot as two thousand square foot, and so no one bids on it because they think it's a thousand square foot home. So we find lots of anomalies like that every single day, and we really home in on the anomalies. Plus, we're chasing asset type, and as more so than geography, so we look for newer stuff. So I look, I look for newer stuff that's mispriced, and the difference is the other tool in my tool belt is I buy occupied. So between having a narrow buy box and a very focused strategy, and also having the flexibility of buying owner occupied, means that I can compete in the marketplace. Wow, that's, I'll tell you what, this show is drinking out of a fire hose because there's so much to talk to you about so fast. So I apologize for everyone at home that we're really blasting through these questions sure. quick, but there's just, you have a lot of working parts to your business. So, but it's straight, now, as much as you say that, I've also set up a production line. One of the big things that people get confused about, they think buying and selling properties is an active business that you need to be actively involved in. And they think that rentals are a passive business that you don't need to be involved in. I see lots of, operators that have rentals that they're heavily involved in. And I know other operators like me who have an active business, but it's it's essentially a business that runs passively. So it's all how you set up your business. And I caution people not to disregard the transactional nature of what I do as being something that eats up all my time. You put the right people in place to run that business and you can have a transactional business that produces a large amount of cash flow that can fund all of your other ventures. Okay, so I would look at you from the outside looking in sort of like a hedge fund manager. You have that person that's the brainchild of analyzing the data, seeing the trends in the marketplace and so forth. How do you replace yourself? Because you're clearly a very bright guy. How do you find another bright individual to say, okay, you have the intuition to know how to analyze these, how to look at the mispriced stuff, and you're not just on your own doing this? My job is to set the vision for the company. Ultimately, I can put everything, everything into a formula or plug and play. That, that's very, very easy. So for instance, right now with the current market conditions, we've got a presidential change possibly coming up with the election year. I think for us, I see a big shift in the marketplace coming. I think it's going to come after the presidential election. That's my personal opinion. But what's going to change is a lot of things from, from the last crash. So I'll give you an example. There's a lot of institutional money in the marketplace. So a lot of asset classes are going to have that backstop of the institutional money. That didn't exist last time. You had homeowners who are hanging on by a thread. Now you've got a huge amount of money supply. So when people talk about the crash, that's really not a fair statement. Different classes are going to fall at different rates. Ultimately, if you've got economics 101 and demand falls, all of the things being equal, price will come down. But specifically in the, in the 
asset classes where institutional money is involved and cheap debt, they're not going to crash. At the end of the day, if you've got, even if a balance sheet's upside down, but you've got an owner who's cash flowing, they don't care, right? Or if you've got Wall Street who owns basically the subdivision, they've got very patient money. So even if the market around them is collapsing, but the timing's wrong, they're not going to sell at the low point because they don't have to. So where I think there's going to be a big gap in the market for us, which we're ramping up for, is the stuff that the hedge funds are not buying. So it's funny. I've always been trying to do things that not everyone else is doing. Everyone's buying apartments right now, right? Right. So I think that market's saturated. And what's funny is my partner, Tim, is buying every apartment in sight. And this is where it's, the world's a beautiful place because when you become really good and find a niche at something, you can buy stuff and beat the market. And he's able to beat the market because he's got such a big reach nationally to be able to get stuff at wholesale. But I look at the market price of a listed apartment building, I don't want to touch any of it. I mean, they're, they're advertising stuff in California, three and four caps, and even in the Midwest and just markets that don't really excite me at seven, eight caps and with a straight face. So for me, I have no interest in that. Oh, and the beauty part is when you're advertising a seven or eight cap and then you underwrite it as a buyer, you're like, how did you even come up with a seven cap on that? Exactly, exactly. Because the numbers are very far reached. They're, they're talking about projected rents and all sorts of crazy things. Oh, everything's things. performance, yeah. It's just exactly. <laughs> but what I do think there's going to be a big shift in the marketplace on this, where I made all my money in single family, which is people don't realize, C-grade assets, working class neighborhoods that were financeable. And here's a, here's a key I'm gonna give everybody that will make you tens of millions of dollars. Buy always, if you're gonna buy a rental that's a single family asset, make sure that the area and the asset are going to be financeable. Right. Why? Because now you've got an exit. If you buy in an area that's not financeable or an asset type where you don't fix it up correctly, your only exit is to sell to another investor. Correct. That's your only exit. So that's where I, we always bought stuff in areas that were good working class neighborhoods, neat yards, pride of ownership, block houses, three bedroom, two bath or four bedroom, two bath, stuff that an end user would want to buy. But we bought at the low point in the market cycle and sold at the high point. And that that really is a formula. Single family rentals in a flat market are not, not that exciting. Why? Because instead of buying an apartment building with 100 units in one place, you have to buy 100 houses spread out. But if you can buy those 100 houses spread out, start day one with a 20% cap rate, and then on top of that, you've got a two and 300% appreciation, that's pretty exciting to me. So oh, absolutely. that's why I like houses. Absolutely. I love houses. Hey, this is Andy from RealFlow, and our mission is to provide the tools and resources that people need to be a successful real estate investor. So as a listener of our podcast, we want to provide you each week with some of the tools you need on your journey. Check out the show notes to get this week's free gift. Happy investing. You know, to explain to everybody at home the way it, we're talking about a non-financeable house, even though banks aren't allowed to do it, that redlining, where they'll basically redline around the area and say, we don't make loans in these neighborhoods yep. because they've taken such a beating in the yep. past on them. Correct. I know exactly the neighborhoods you're talking about. You would never, they won't come out and say, we won't lend because of that house, but they're going to have a million other reasons not to yeah, lend. Yes, so it's a war house. zone. So mm -hmm. what we found and I'll let you in another clue about what not to buy. If you buy war zone properties, and there are landlords that do that, it's a grind. It's a grind because you'll never sell for anything. So there's no real upside to that asset. Number two, you got a huge turnover because no one consistently, unless they're uh, operating on the wrong side of the law, typically don't want to stay in a neighborhood like that. It's a transitional neighborhood by nature. And the repair bills, when tenants do move out, we found to be a lot higher. So we just don't buy in war zones. We buy in C, C plus. That's what worked really well for me. 
And everybody ultimately has to go off their own personal experience. But buying, buying financeable assets in financeable areas at the low point in the market has been the magic formula. And next market cycle, I intend to buying thousands of homes statewide in Florida. Oh, exactly. Everyone, and I'm not going to talk about the media and everything, but I believe it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when you talk about the economy saying we're heading to recession. Well, then that starts shaking everybody's confidence and people are like, whoa, better not spend, better slow things down a little bit. It's almost they put out there exactly what's going to happen. And really, it's for guys like us, I think it'd be great. I'd love to see a little bit of a downturn, bring the prices down a little bit, yep. weed out some of the trash in the market. Yep. Well, one of my mentors who's worth several hundred million dollars, and by the way, at this point in my career, unless someone's worth more than $100 million, I, I disregard their advice because I figure it's not advice that, that I can actually use. It's going to add another zero onto my portfolio. But what he said was really interesting. I remember he called the low point in the Dow Jones in 2008. He texted me and goes, bottom, bottom of the market. And I remember reading the text and I looked at the market. I'm like, how does this guy know? So I, I remember I took him out to lunch. It was a week or two later. And I said, you got to tell me how you know. It's like you have a crystal ball and you know. And he told me something really key about the economy. The economy is driven by one word. And I said, okay. And I, so I'm guessing all these words that were wrong. And he goes, no, it's spending. And I said, okay. And he, and he goes, do you know what drives spending? I said, uh, so I gave him all these words that I thought were right. And he said, no, it's confidence. Yep. And so ultimately, if you look at an economy and you want to know what's going on, if there's lots of spending, that's what keeps the engine running because that keeps the entire supply chain running. When people are not confident, they close their wallet, they stop spending. So that ultimately, to, to your point, when the media starts scaring people and people start doing that with their wallet, that's when things spiral and go downhill. So there's, the government has a lot of control of the economy, but the consumers do too, because by them simply closing their wallets, hoarding their money because they're scared and not spending, that dries up an economy very quickly. So that, that leads me to the next question here. We're talking about, you know, you're buying all these houses. And clearly, a lot of them, you said- Buying and selling. Buying and selling, yes. Right now. <laughs> yeah, and you're going and getting a lot of these auction sites. Yes. So let's talk about these auction sites. One, how are they making it to the auction site versus just the private sale going on? Sure. And how much competition do you have in that space? Sure, there's a lot of competition space. It's typically institutions that are going to list on the major auction platform. So there's two kinds of auctions. There's auction platforms like Zome, Auction.com, Hudson & Marshall. So that, that's one bucket of auction sites. Then there's county foreclosures or trustee sales, depending wh whether you're right. in a judicial or non-judicial. We've actually ceased buying at foreclosure auctions temporarily because the risk associated with buying a foreclosure versus the price is not worth it. Now, the reason a lot of institutional money has gone there is because they can bid today, win today, and own today. And that, for a lot of people who are trying to deploy capital, is, is very attractive. For me, I want to make money. So if I'm competing against people that don't have the same incentive to make money, I'm uncompetitive in that marketplace. So we recognized that almost a couple of years ago, stopped buying at all foreclosure auctions. We were buying in 21 counties in Florida. We ceased all foreclosure auction buying temporarily. I have found personally on a lot of the foreclosure sites, they kind of like the, the buyers here to buy, put some money down today, buy today, that after they get my deposit, it's a long closing period before I actually take Well, that's deed. and that's the difference between an auction platform, which is right. essentially selling REOs versus, so you, in simple terms, you got before the sale, which is typically you can either pay off the bank or do a short sale or stop it going to sale. Mm -hmm. Then you got the stuff at the sale, which is the foreclosure of the trustee sales. Mm -hmm. And then the stuff we're talking about on auction.com and Zoom is the stuff after the sale. So you've got three main buckets if you're talking about foreclosures. 
before the sale, at the sale, or after the sale. We've stopped buying at the sale. We target people before the sale by mm -hmm. going seller direct, but we don't buy at the sale currently. Then you go to the after the sale, back to the in, zone. In simple terms, and this, this is universal. I look at any marketplace and I see what's going on in the marketplace, where's the opportunity, and how can I capitalize on it? And that's a shifting target. Now, not in days or months in real estate, but, but over quarters and years, the opportunity changes and you gotta be willing to move your business and, and it's all down to supply. So it, you wanna know where can you get the best deals? And that has changed from the foreclosure auction several years ago yeah. to now these auction sites where I'm picking up anomalies to now going back to what I was doing 13 years ago, which is going direct to the seller. It's funny, there's, there's new technology, but the approach to real estate hasn't changed. It's just the, we're now able to engage technology, which allows an operator like me in Tampa, Florida to buy nationwide. I would say that my model, I could not have done this successfully 13 years ago. Right. Oh, you could have. Now, that many markets, absolutely. When I got started, I had a roll paper fax machine. Right. There was no email. Or at least I didn't have it. People still fax me. It's funny. <laughs> I'm like, you do know you're just actually emailing me. I right. just gave you a fax number. When I email you back, it sends it to your fax. But yeah, we still entertain faxes. We deal with some old school attorneys that have right. no email. That's crazy. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So... On the auctions, one thing that scares a lot of people, I know I'm sticking on this auction for sure. a few minutes here. No problem. Is getting into the property, yeah. going in ahead of time. And clearly you're in 20 different markets, 30 different markets, so you're not dispatching people to all these houses. How do you roll the dice saying, I bet sure. it's okay inside? So with an auction platform, we take a reasonable guess based on standard repairs, based on the pictures we do have and the intel we have. We, we corral the repairs into a range that looks reasonable. And then after we, we win the property, then we do a full evaluation on it because we don't have to fund those for weeks. At the foreclosure auction, what I would tell everybody, you wanna know what the title looks like and you wanna know what the picture's like before you bid. Because depending on which auction you're at, it could be anywhere from a 5% deposit now or a couple hundred bucks all the way to 100% right there and then as soon as you win. So it's really the Latin term, a caveat poor, buyer beware really stands true because they don't guarantee they're selling the right property. They don't guarantee what condition. There's no guarantees. There is no money back. So you just got to be careful in what you're buying. I guess my, my standard answer is you're better off focusing on a narrower bunch of houses, like really focus what your buy box is, but make sure you look at every house and make sure you run the title on every house. That's the safest answer I could give you. So a, a great story here that just kind of piggybacks on you're saying they're not guaranteeing the right property. Yeah. New investor. Bought a property at auction, went in, rehabbed it, started doing all this brickwork on the front of it. Yeah. All of a sudden, a guy pulls in the driveway about two months later, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And he's like, well, we bought this house. He's like, no, this is my house. I was in Florida yeah. you know, for the wintertime. And he goes, no, it went to auction. He goes, no, no, no. That vacant lot next door to me went to auction. This is my house. And they basically put like 50 grand in this guy's yeah. house while he was gone. So It's crazy. We bought the wrong house before. I, I can tell you every horror store after buying thousands of foreclosures, mm -hmm. bought the wrong house, been in litigation for years with homeowners. We had incorrect foreclosures, which we then took on the burden of. So the bank did something they shouldn't have done. And then after we've bought the house, they run the foreclosure case through appellate court. And we now get caught in the bank's appeal with the homeowner after we've taken title and owned it. I could tell you horror stories. People don't realize the strength of ownership. So you got a warranty deed, you're kind of up here, depending on what state you're in. But you get a quick claim deed, you're, you're kind of down here because all the person selling you the house saying, I quit my claim. I, I'm not, I'm, that's all I'm telling you, I'm not saying anything else. I quit my claim to this house. Then you've got a certificate of title, which is like really low. It really is a very shaky ownership, which is why we either want to 
get that certificate of title and move it over and get a warranty deed to protect our title if we're going to hold it long term. Or if we're buying it on a transactional basis, we want to buy and sell it. But it's not a very strong form of ownership. See, and that probably scares a lot of the folks listening Agreed. here. It should. However, it really should. So many of, you know, when you're when you're looking on social media and you watch everyone standing next to their private jets and their Ferraris and everything else, they're not telling you this part. And that's right. how I know how real you are because I go through stuff like that. The stories I, I always like to say when I have something stupid happen, I was like, gosh, what CD was that on, man? They, they failed to tell me this could happen. Right. <laughs> I mean, but you're also, you're playing at a high level. How many houses a year are you doing? Right now, uh, we'll do about 400 by the end of this year. 400, Just and that's this year alone. Correct. Correct. And over your career, how many have you done? Over 7,500. Wow. Crazy. I always say over 1,000 because I stopped counting, but yeah. that's up there. 7,500, that's yeah, a lot. Well, well over half a billion at this point. I, I probably need to update those numbers. Then they, they might scare me because I know that they're way more than what I told you. Yeah, but, you know, so you talk about these little, like little hiccups here and there. I mean, Babe Ruth didn't knock all of them out of the park. He struck out too. Correct. And there are some strikes. So it's like a numbers game to you. You're, yes. Clearly, you're taking some calculated risk. Correct. And you're, you know, hoping it all works out. But because you are removed... A little bit and you have your system and team in place you know you are relying on a lot of our people so why don't you take me through your average day you get up in the morning sure. start with your morning routine and take me through the evening sure yeah i get i try to get up around five o'clock in the morning i pray i do some reading i take my vitamins get everything set up for the day food wise because that's really important to me that's my fuel i then go boxing most mornings at least three days out of the five days i go boxing five-time world champ, Antonio Tarver is my trainer, great guy, great trainer. So that gets my mind right, my body right. Get into the office, try to get my email cleared because I want it to be free for incoming, uh, basically incoming tasks. Then I look at my meetings for the day. I try to get everything locked in the morning. The reason I do that, I don't like emergencies. And for the thing that stresses me out and puts me off track is emergencies. So anything that's an emergency in my business, I've tried to figure out a way to either put someone in front of it or find a way to not have emergencies. Even something as simple as my ringer being off the last 15 years, I have no ringer on my phone, no no vibrate, nothing, because it just it throws me off. I just put the phone down, I work. And so then at that point, I'm trying to swing the needle forward in every single business that I run. I run multiple businesses in different industries. So organization and planning is key. You just gotta be ahead of that and make sure each meeting has a purpose. What am I trying to achieve in this meeting? What am I trying to achieve this week? And ultimately, if you do something in each business each day to move the business forward, and each week you've got a weekly goal, each business is gonna head in the right direction. So I've tried to identify what those big ticket items are that I should be focused on that actually move the business from where it was today to something tangible by Friday. What about family time? Sure. Personal time, unwinding time. What do you like sure. doing other than fighting? Yeah, absolutely. So my goal is to be done 5, 5.30, and then I spend that time with my son until he goes to bed. That's a, a daily ritual. That's awesome. That's fantastic. So let's recap because we touched on so many things. And I here. schedule that too, by the way, just like I would schedule a meeting. People make fun of that, but if it's important for me to show up for a board meeting, it's important for me to show up when the time is for my son too. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. So going back, you're buying in multiple markets. Mm -hmm. You have other people making these decisions for you, looking based off of data. I do final underwriting. So basically what happens is all the information said, saying we bought this, I'm the one that signs off on purchases. Okay, awesome. So you are looking at the final numbers on this. So Sure, I'll, get, I'll put it this way, in very simple terms. If you look at the production line, you've got pre-acquisition, acquisition, you've got construction, you've got the sales department, then you got the transaction coordinator for a pending property, and then you got the accounting function. 
So all the pre-acquisition is done, I come in at showtime. So I say, yes, here's all your numbers, here's your analysis, yes. Or I say, well, what? I'll ask a question. But I don't do all of that work. It, the work is compiled for me and I do the final sign off. In fact, it's signed off by me and before we actually purchase the asset, my chief operating officer and I both have to sign off on it. After we have the property renovated, we then underwrite it again and compare it to our initial underwriting and see if we want to list it for more or less and what our original assumptions were about the property. But we memorialize each one of those assumptions so we have a document to go back on. I always want to know what was I thinking at time zero when I bid on this asset. And by saving those calculations in the, the calculator, I can look back and look at my, my thought process. So when you were looking at your cap, your capitalization rates on these, which is basically- We're not actually looking at cap rate on our purchases. So for us, uh, for something we're buying and selling, we're looking at the return on our investment. We're basically, it's just an ROI. We're looking at how long we're gonna hold it, what our ROI is. The cap rates we do look at on our rentals, because ultimately I wanna know uh, what the income is on the property, You know, look at the purchase price, and it gives you a good measure. So for instance, uh, the cap rates were in the mid-teens on the kind of assets I like to buy, and now I've seen them down at seven, eight percent. You think about the fact that you're getting five percent debt on that, and the fact that these numbers are inflated. You've got a lot of operators working off really thin margins. I mean, if you're if you're truly the deal is making seven percent, and you've got to pay out five or five and a half percent to a lender, and you're off at all on your your numbers that came up with that seven percent net, I would think one of the big risks I see is that there's a lot of operators in the market that are not like. Tim, for instance, who's in my network, a very smart operator, and they're working off thin margins just to buy doors. I think I actually wrote this on a, a post a few weeks ago. There's a lot of people focus on the wrong numbers. So they're focused on the size of their portfolio. They're focused on the number of doors. They're focused on the amount of hours they work instead of being focused on profitability, equity, right. cash flow. The number of doors doesn't matter. I can show you operators that have less doors and have more equity. In fact, I know one operator, good friend of mine, 100 million in property with 40 million in equity. I mean, he's in really, really good equity position and his cash flow is insane. A lot of single family doors can get you two, 300 bucks a month, depending right. on when you bought them in the market cycle versus apartments that are 100, typically $100 after you take out all the cash, that that's about what you're gonna cash flow on an asset. So there's there's lots of ways to make money in real estate. And, none, and this is where people say, well, is it single family or is it apartments? Well, you got to work out where you want to go with your business, what your goal is, and then that's what's right for you. But I, I try not to put people in a box, say this is right, this is wrong. Renovating in Florida at the top of the market to keep them as rentals, probably not a smart move. So there's some certain things that can point out. But I love real estate because whether you're a lender or there's different asset class you can buy or you can get on the lending side and have not own anything but control a lot of real estate. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful industry, Ren. Wow. It has been great having you on here. You're referring to Tim. That's Tim Bratz. He's actually Correct. going to be on our show as well here yeah, on our Adirondack Tim. Great guy. We'll talk all about cash flow with him. So I always like to end with asking, what freedoms has real estate given you? Well, I mean, what hasn't it given me? I mean, I just look at everything that I've been able to do in my life over the last 15 years. It's all been done by real estate. I live a very blessed lifestyle. I can pretty much have whatever I want. Uh, I can travel wherever I want. And for me, that's exciting. I'm also, but the most exciting thing now is having a three-year-old son. I have everything I need, so I'm setting him up to enjoy a life he never dreamed of. So to me, that's exciting. That is awesome. Yeah, I want him to be an asset manager, and this is where I've been instilling. It's, I do one little game with him every day where he puts money in his money bank, and I say, son, 
you know, as far as money goes, I said, money doesn't make you happy, money's a tool. And he said, money doesn't make you happy, money's a tool. Like there's some money for your money bucks. And he loves that. So we just little lessons like that every single day. I'm trying to show him that this doesn't make you happy, but this can get you from A to B. And that's all it is. It's a tool in your life. The fuel for the machine. Yes. That is awesome. Well, Lee, it's been great having you on the show. You've been watching the Real Estate Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Rob the House Guy. And remember, nothing works unless you do. This episode is brought to you by RealFlow, the smart way to invest in real estate. All the tools you need to automate lead generation and marketing. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to leave us a review and subscribe. And you can get a copy of the transcript in the show notes below. Happy investing.